Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 256, Massacre on Wake Island. Last time, Rear Admiral Kajioka of the Imperial Japanese Navy came at Wake Island with his flotilla, believing perhaps too much the stories his bombers told him of their destruction of the Marines' defensive works, or perhaps it was his aggressive nature that won over any sense of planning or moderation. Either way, by December 11th, he and his were retreating from Wake, with no specific destination or orders given, just get the hell out of there. December 12th was to open up for the Japanese with a pre-dawn raid on the Marines by six Kawanishi flying boats operating out of Majuro of the Marshall Islands, some 900 miles or 1,448 kilometers to the southeast. But rain squalls prevented any accuracy. Still, the flying boats went up, and the Marines sent up pilot Frank Tharin, but the two could not find each other over Wake. The Japanese released their bombs right over the lagoon to the north of the airstrip, but Theron couldn't find the enemy until they flew away from the island to clearer skies. It was then that he sent one of them into the water, along with its nine-member crew, and there were no survivors. It was either the loss of this plane or the clouds hanging over Wake that kept the Japanese from attacking for the rest of the day. Still, the Marines could not know this, so kept improving their defenses. Also on this day, their 80 dead comrades, thus far, were laid to rest. As previously mentioned, the defenders were down to two Wildcat fighters, that is, until 2nd Lieutenant John Kinney managed to salvage a third. This was done by him working through the night. So once the plane was operational, Kinney passed out in a nearby bunker. Zooming out a bit, while the Marines waited for the next attack, they were being helped and hurt by their fellow Americans. Admiral Kimmel, back in Oahu, was trying to gather a relief force, complete with replacement fighters. But it was the American news media that kept reminding the Japanese of just how isolated the Marines on Wake were in their attempt to make the defenders out to be heroes by surviving such odds. Kimmel created Task Force 12 with the carrier USS Lexington at its center, ready to ship out, to take the Tangier, previously a cargo ship, now a seaplane tender, which held a battalion of Marine reinforcements. But as it was the Marine pilots that were keeping the Japanese off wake, there was little point in sending more men without sending more fighters. But the fighters needed had been in San Diego, about to ship out with the carrier USS Saratoga. The planes in question were the older and relatively more cumbersome Brewster F-2A-3 Buffalo fighters. But as the Japanese bombers were coming over wake, mostly unprotected, these would probably do. Yet, U.S. Naval regulations said that a carrier had to have a destroyer escort. Prudent, to be sure, but the only destroyers around San Diego were three older and thus slower 
vessels. So they all headed out for Oahu together, but at a fraction of the speed the carrier was capable of. Fortunately for the Americans, the carrier Saratoga had just re-entered San Diego on December 7th to pick up its pilots, who had been in training. Leaving port on the 8th, the carrier and its slow escorts reached Oahu on December 15th. But that is where any luck the Americans had ran out. When Saratoga finally released the Brewster Buffalo Fighters to Task Force 12 and the Lexington, the savior of Wake Island left Pearl on December 16th, but was unable to refuel at sea, hence it had to return to port. But here, Admiral Kimmel, now under tremendous pressure and worried about his future, made a mistake. Task Force 12 was changed to Task Force 11, and instead of reinforcing Wake, it would now head to the Marshall Islands to keep the Japanese at bay. Meanwhile, a newly created Task Force 14 would relieve Wake, now with the Saratoga at its center. The whys of this are still not clear to this day, but the end result was that the Marines of Wake would have to wait longer for any sucker. Meanwhile, the new Task Force 11, led by Vice Admiral Wilson Brown, given the job of offensively going after the Japanese on the Marshall Islands, left Pearl on December 14th. Only two days later, December 16th, did the Saratoga and Task Force 14 leave for Wake. But now its commander, Rear Admiral Frank Fletcher, was spitting nails. He wanted to save Wake and take out as many Japanese as he could get. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Leaving history to Judge Admiral Kimmel, he was right to be stressed and perhaps overwrought by his situation. Just days before the attack on Pearl, Secretary of the Navy Frank Knox had said, The Navy is ready. It is not going to be caught napping. Now, powerful members of Congress wanted Knox's head on a plate, but he was determined to give them someone else's. As to who... That seemed fairly obvious to Knox and perhaps Kimmel. 
Although Knox would go on to blame Japanese Americans living in Hawaii for the surprise attack and would fully support the internment of Japanese Americans, he demanded that FDR remove the admiral in Oahu. And not needing the distraction, the president and the navy gave in. On December 16th, the same day that Task Force 14 departed on its way to Wake, Kimmel received word he was relieved. But history should also judge those who removed Kimmel, for his replacement, Vice Admiral William Pye, was not a man of action. In fact, proving himself to be more concerned about losing than winning. Hardly what America needed after the disaster at Pearl. In that vein, Vice Admiral Pye would regularly order Rear Admiral Frank Fletcher to refuel Task Force 14 while on its way to Wake. This meant stomping and topping off the various tanks. But it wasn't simple prudence on Pye's part, being in the middle of a war. No, he wanted Fletcher and company to be ready to get away should they encounter a superior enemy force, which is not what Fletcher was thinking at all. But when a vice admiral tells a subordinate to do something, the only response is, aye, aye, sir. I understand and will comply. There is purposefully nothing in that response about disagreeing. But how this regular refueling affected the Marines on wake was this. The sole oiler of Task Force 14 was the Nietzsche's, which could only do 12 knots, whereas the three cruisers and eight destroyers and the carrier Saratoga could do at least 36 knots. Not that it mattered. The now 12-knot sailing task force was on its slow way to wake, in between its refueling stops, of course. From the ineffectual early bombing raid back on December 12th, through the 22nd, the Japanese showed up less frequently, but more randomly, keeping the Americans at the ready, which was exhausting. But because of their losses thus far, the Japanese bombers were delivering their loads from much higher, which reduced their accuracy even further. On the 13th, the skies remained friendly to the Marines, but there still was a casualty, and an important one at that. Pilot Fruller wrecked his wildcat on takeoff. He was able to walk away, but the defenders were now back down to two planes. The next day, the 14th, the Japanese returned, and most of their bombs hit nothing of import, except one did manage to find one of the fighters, setting it ablaze. Like saving his own child, Kinney and two others rushed into the flames and managed to bring out the plane's engine. Fortunately, no one was hurt, but his fellow Marines had to be asking each other, how much more could Kinney take? The days went by, filled with either hours of tense boredom or minutes of hopefully death-defying excitement. That and coffee. Lots of coffee. Regardless, the men and their leader, Devereaux, was losing their edge. Finally, on December 20th, something different happened. Landing in the lagoon was a consolidated PBY Catalina flying boat. On board were two U.S. Navy pilots. And the news they had 
brought relief to United States Navy Commander Winfield Cunningham, in overall command, Marine Commander Devereaux, and Flight Commander Putnam. Their men, however, were excited, as by now the fight was personal and seen as a testament to their staying power. The Navy pilots had said, prepare to receive reinforcements and to evacuate the civilian workers. Obviously, this last group was relieved and excited. The flying boat left the next day, December 21st, early in the morning, carrying the mailbags left off by the Pan Am Boeing Clipper back on December 8th, December 7th at Pearl. But the emotional roller coaster wasn't over for the Marines just yet. A few hours after the PBY floating boat disappeared over the horizon, another droning sound filled the air. Looking up, the Marines saw enemy fighters and fighter bombers, but these were no land-based planes. No, they came from an enemy carrier. So American vessels were on the way, but so too were enemy ships. Question was, who would get there first, and who had the most? As for the latter question, that was easy. It was Admiral Kajioka who was back for his second attempt to land troops on Wake. Now he was reinforced by not only four heavy cruisers, two mine layers, a seaplane tender, and 1,600 infantrymen, a second special naval landing force, but also by the carriers Huryu and Soryu, coming off of their participation in the wildly successful raid against Pearl Harbor. Yet, inexplicably, Kajioka, perhaps in arrogance, as he clearly had the material superiority, did not position his assets wisely. The four heavy cruisers were to the east of Wake, but unprotected by air power and within range of the planes of Task Force 14 coming towards Wake, albeit slowly, though in truth it's doubtful that Kajioka knew that Fletcher was bearing down on him. Kajioka's first raid of December 21st finally managed to damage the stubborn Battery D anti-air unit on the east end of Peel Island to the north. The guns had already been moved once and would be moved again after this hard-hitting attack. As for the crew of Battery D, they lost platoon sergeant John Olson Big Wright in a most ghastly way. The bomb explosion tore off his left arm and drove it through his torso. After the attack, the men stood around their fallen leader and swore to avenge his death. Not being held responsible for wrecking one of the remaining wildcats, Fruller was allowed to go up again during this attack. He was able to shoot down one of the enemy, but the rest managed to evade him. A second air raid that day saw more harassment than damage, but the Marines were kept, once again, from relaxing or improving their works. The next day, December 22nd, saw a much larger attack, this time from the two carriers. Six Zero fighters escorted 33 Nakajima B-5N Kate-type 97 bombers. Nothing for it, Cunningham and Devereaux sent up 
their last two Wildcats, piloted by Fruler and Davison. Fruler got past the Zeros and tore into a Cape bomber, sending it to the waters below. He immediately set upon another bomber, this time firing from behind and just above. But just as its bullets started piercing the Japanese plane, the bomber exploded, sending debris back into the Wildcat. And on board that second Kate bomber was Petty Officer First Class Naburo Kani, whose bomb had hit the USS Arizona at 8.06 a.m. December 7th, near Turret 2, igniting the ship's forward magazine, the resulting explosion killing 1,177 crewmen aboard at the time. Fruler then had Petty Officer 3rd Class Tahara Isao on his tail. During the dogfight, Fruler would try to run down another zero, while Tahara would return again and again to his six. Finally, assessing the damage to his wildcat, Fruler faked a death dive, pulling out at the last second, but it was enough to give Tahara enough time to concentrate on something else. That something else was the other American pilot, Davidson. Unable to shake the Zero, Davidson headed out for open water, thinking that Tahara would lose interest. But he did not. Using his superior speed, the Zero pilot caught up with the Wildcat and finished it off. Now unencumbered by Marine Wildcats, the Cape Bombers hit almost every battery on Wake that day. But for all this, they destroyed no new guns, nor killed a single Marine. When the island's defenders found out that there were no remaining fighters, they became despondent but not nearly so much as Kinney did. Looking after the Wildcats had become his entire reason for existence, and now that they were gone, his mind and body gave out. Devereaux sent him to the nearest aid station. The other pilots, now grounded, volunteered to serve as infantry. The sunset of December 22nd was followed by heavy rains. The winds also picked up sending waves to crash against the coral reef. Together, they created a cacophony of sound. And the incoming heavy clouds finished it off by covering the island in almost complete darkness. Using this, Kajioka would send his men inland this very night. As the Admiral had ordered the landings to begin at 2 a.m. December 23rd, an hour before the deadline, two cruisers were sent to bombard Peel Island on the northern side. But as it was pitch dark, their shells landed a mile or two north of their mark, with the Japanese being none the wiser. But the flashes woke up the Marines on Peel Island, and soon all of the Marines of Wake were told they're coming. At 2.30 a.m., lookouts spotted dark shapes on the water, south of the southern coastline of Wake Island proper. These were patrol boats 32 and 33. Just to the west of this, on Peel Island's southern shoreline at 2.53 a.m., two landing craft engines could be heard. At this, the Marines activated their 60-inch truck-mounted Sperry searchlights to locate the incoming enemy. And 
Perhaps it was fatigue, but Devonroe, nor anyone else, thought to send up star shells to light up the dark waters in front of the Marines. Had they done so, it might have scared the enemy off, knowing they would be approaching in full view and thus sitting ducks. When the light on Wilkes Island, pointing to the southeast, spotted the first wave of 900 troops approaching, the Marines opened fire with their 50 caliber machine guns. For the Japanese, their priority was different. All who could aimed for that damned light, putting it out in about one minute after it was turned on. From there, the Marines just fired their guns into the sea before them, hoping for the best. The first Special Naval Landing Force troops to reach shore came in near Battery F, just left of center on Wilkes Island, and having reached land, they shot up a red flare to let their comrades know they had a foothold. However, on the northwestern tip of Wilkes at Cuckoo Point, the troops coming ashore there would never get the chance to use their flare gun. At Cuckoo, a second searchlight was activated, catching the invaders by surprise. It was then that Private First Class Erwin Pistolet opened up with his 50 caliber machine gun. Not one man in the three rubber boats survived. With no light to help Battery F, again near the center of Wilkes Island, the Japanese reached shore. Some had been taken out by lucky shots, but the majority were now on land and fanning out. Seeing this, the men of Battery F, led by Marine Gunner Clarence McKinstry, disabled their big gun and moved back. But if the Americans were expecting to be hunted down, they were in for a surprise. Once the Japanese were on shore, they stopped and put up dozens of Japanese flags on any high point they could find. The confused Americans would find out the why of this, but only later. Next, the enemy troops cut whatever telephone lines they could. The various Marine groups scattered around Wake, but more specifically on Wilkes Island, were now unable to communicate with each other. Hey everyone, Ray here. Have you heard the expression, less is more? That is so true in our overstimulated world. Or as the folks who make the Ridge Wallet say, cluttered life, cluttered mind. Well, the first stop to getting decluttered is taking a look at your bulging wallet. It's more like a suitcase stuffed with old receipts. No, you need, you want, the Ridge Wallet, a minimalist front pocket wallet that will be the last wallet you'll ever need. The Ridge helps you carry less, but always what you need. It's nothing like a traditional wallet. Two metal planes of titanium, carbon fiber, or aluminum. So there's an option for everyone, bound together by a durable elastic band. It's slim FRID blocking and lifetime guaranteed, and comes in a dozen different styles and colors. I have the titanium gunmetal and the carbon fiber wallets, so I can switch it up whenever I want. Now I carry what I need in my front pocket, and the Ridge wallet is so slim it seems to disappear, but all my valuables are right there. And for the ladies, again, you can have all your necessities in one small, sleek container. Join the more than 250,000 men and women who have switched 
and declutter their lives. Get 10% off today with free worldwide shipping by going to ridgewallet.com ww2. That's ridgewallet.com ww2. And use code ww2. Though the larger invasion force was on the main island of Wake, the four groups of Marines on Wilkes Island, separated and unable to use the phones, decided independently to move out and engage the Japanese on their island. The leaders of each group were McKinstry, Corporal Lillard Johnson, who had a 30 caliber machine gun and eight men on Cuckoo Point, that is, the northwest corner, Lieutenant McAllister, and Captain Wesley Platt, who had earned the respect of his men by treating them humanely. By now the sun was starting to rise, and the various groups headed out, instinctively headed for Battery F. When each Marine group came upon enemy soldiers, they coordinated their attacks in a professional manner. But it has to be said that by now, with their adrenaline up, their attacks were intense and left no one alive. At one point, McKinstry and his 24 men came upon a relatively large group of Japanese soldiers who, when seeing the Americans, gave a battle cry and charged. But as the majority of men with McKinstry were from the South, they unconsciously gave their own cry, this being the rebel yell of the Confederates of the U.S. Civil War, and equally ran headlong into the fray. Within minutes, all of the Japanese troops were dead. As the island was covered with scrub grass, some of it was high or thick enough for the men to hide in. Hence, the American groups kept on the move, but there were times when they were surprised or ambushed by the Japanese. The Marines used the cover themselves when they could. But this continuing move and engage tactic worked. Many Japanese were killed. None were taken prisoners. But the defenders were starting to see their numbers diminish with deaths and woundings. It didn't take long before the various Japanese units realized they were being hunted. And as they were the first ones on shore, their weapons were not superior to the Americans. This forced them to pull back which allowed the Marines to increase the speed at which the enemy was discovered and killed. With the sun getting higher in the late morning sky, soon there were only 30 Japanese troops left on Wilkes Island, and they were all now huddled around the truck that held the destroyed searchlight. The four groups of Marines closed in on them, having them trapped to the point where the invaders were trying to hide or seek cover under the truck. But they weren't done fighting yet, and their warrior code would not let them surrender. Increased fire was exchanged between the two opposing forces. One Marine was shot in the face. His head exploded. Another Marine was hit in the gut and went down moaning. That's when Corporal Lillard Johnson, with his thirty caliber machine gun, lost it. At that moment, in his own words, I sat down and readied my gun. Then I simply kept the trigger depressed and watched the bullets going where I wanted them to go, 
Only every fourth bullet was a tracer, so I realized how severe the machine gun fire was, as shrieks and screams came from the Japanese, as their bodies winced and contorted. Methodically, from left to right, I had attempted to spray bullets into every Japanese body visible. Soon, all 250 bullets from his gun belt were expended, so he loaded a second one and kept firing. In his rage and grief, it took him a moment to realize that this, too, was soon empty. Only then did he let up the trigger. By then, there were 94 dead enemy troops before him, with two wounded. Those two soldiers still resisted, so the other Marines finished them off. Then the four groups talked and realized that between their sweeps and coming from different locations, there were no enemy troops left on Wilkes Island. And still being worked up, they began to tear at the Japanese flags on the beach. But as soon as the flags were laying on the ground, this was noticed by the Japanese offshore, the enemy sent carrier-based bombers and fighters to target the Americans. And as their artillery was disabled, they only had 50 caliber and smaller weapons to fight back with. The Marines put back the flags as fast as they could, but the pilots above could see that their comrades were dead, so kept up the attack on Wilkes Island. Now it was the Marines' turn to hide in the scrub as best they could. They had won the battle for the island, but the larger war wasn't over yet. There were still some 900 Japanese troops about to land on the main island. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So, since it's been a while, I just wanted to thank um, those who have become members and say hi and anybody who's donated. So, I'm just going to go through this list. And again, this is just my way of thanking you. So, newest members to help to, uh, support the show. Larry D. from Plano, Texas. Alan H. from Carmel, Indiana. Jeffrey H. from Louisville, Kentucky. Thomas M. from Dolny Kubin, Slovakia. I'm sure I got that exactly right. Peter B. from Fort Myers, Florida. Stephen C. from Halifax, Canada. Christina K. from Belle Reve, Illinois. Benjamin W. from Carson City, Nevada. Mark P. from Oak Hills, California. David S. from Sutton, New South Wales, Australia. G'day. Eric P. Dolphin, Pennsylvania. Dufan, Pennsylvania. I'm sorry, I don't know how to say that. Sandra N. Ontario, Canada, where my wife says we need to go. Gerald M. from Cleveland, Ohio. Kyle H. from Mechanicville, New York. Uh, Gerben from the Netherlands. Uh, Matthew G. from Taunton, Massachusetts. Darren E. from Liverpool, UK, who we thought we were going to be able to meet up when I came to Scotland in 30-something days, but unfortunately he's choosing family and work over me. That's, that's kind of selfish. Uh, Jolena S. from Arlington, South Dakota. I think I've got everybody, but if I missed your name, I'm very sorry, and, and thank you for uh, becoming a member. You get you know two extra episodes a month. Um, right now I've just started a... History of the Waffen-SS as they participate in the coming uh, wars uh, in the East and the West. So I'm going to we'll dig down on that and see how their fanaticism and their professionalism helped Hitler gain some incredible victories early on. 
And of course, the disintegration of the SS as all parts of Nazi Germany did as the war went on. Uh, as far as donations, there's a Joseph G. Thank you, Joseph. And then there's a Mr. Anonymous who wanted to remain anonymous, so he has now been promoted to Mr. Anonymous. I would like to say hi to Hugh H. in South Africa. Um, if we didn't get everything figured out with your membership, please write back to me and let me know. I honestly can't remember. I really do need an assistant. And I would like to say hi to Paul F. in Fairfax, Virginia. I will be taking you up on that beer promise one day. So, so one day we'll work something out and I can get to Northern Virginia because it's only like two, two and a half hour drive. Um, for me from where I'm at near Charlottesville. So again, just um, I hope you're enjoying this. I, I really wanted to do Wake because it was, I wanted to do Wake in great detail because it was a moment for America to have a victory, as small as it was, or could have been, um, right after Pearl and everything that's going on with MacArthur. It would just really would have been a big boost, but no, as you, as you probably know already, and as we're all going to find out in detail, it doesn't work out that way for various reasons, and I, so I just that's why I'm kind of drilling down into this, and I, I just want to um, go through it and tell the story, and then we'll get back to the main overall uh, Pacific theater, and then jump back and forth between Europe and, and Pacific, because I know some of you are missing um, uh, the Europe theater. Uh, John Siemens in Australia, he let me know he's ready to get back anytime, so John, I'm working on it as fast as I can, however... Um, I am going to the beach two weeks from now. I'll be writing a little bit, but not recording. And two weeks after I get back from the beach, I'm going to Scotland for 10 days. Uh, Edinburgh, Inverness, Sky Island, uh, that kind of stuff. So um, I'll, there will be some, some delays and hiccups. But for right now, I'm trying to do one episode a week, keep it going, keep the story moving forward so we can get on to other things. And I, as always... Thank you for your patience. Take care, everyone.